It's been said that every quilt tells a story, and it's so true. But I also believe every quilter has a story to tell. I wanted to hear about the people behind these wonderful quilts and thought you'd enjoy hearing about their lives also. Welcome to A Quilter's Life. After I saw this incredible story posted by The Cultivated Cowgirl on Facebook, I had to reach out to Heather Slayton for her to share her story with us. She shares her miracle story plus so much more. I also love how close she is to her extended family and that they have the opportunity to work in a business together. Heather, thank you so much for joining me on A Quilter's Life. Thanks for sharing your time with me. Thanks so much. It's so good to be here. I'm glad to get a chance to talk quilting with somebody else. It's always a lot of fun. Uh huh. I want to start back with where were you born and raised? So I have lived in the same town my whole life. I was born in Tyler, Texas, actually, but home has always been Jacksonville, Texas. Just a great little community. It's a very rural area. We're a couple of hours outside of Dallas, and I've lived within about 10 miles of where I am now my entire life. Oh, wow. Share a special childhood memory. So I have two brothers and a little sister. Growing up, we always had a lot of fun doing Lots of things outside, just kind of any and everything. We were raised in church and our parents were youth pastors, so we did a lot of church events. But one of the biggest, most standout memories I have is here in Texas, our state flower is the blue bonnet. And we had a huge field out in front of our house that always had Indian paintbrushes and blue bonnets every year. And everybody in Texas, if you ask, as a kid was told, you'll be arrested if you pick a blue bonnet. So I was terrified to pick a blue bonnet. And even in our own field, and that isn't actually a true thing. We have later found out you're not supposed to pick them on the roadside, but if you grow them, you can. But I was just terrified of that. But I absolutely loved dressing up. I remember in school, I homeschooled at this point. We had transitioned from public school to homeschool. And I had fallen in love with Native American culture and reading about the powwows and different things like that. And my mom had bought me one summer a sewing box and some little needles and thread and buttons and just some cheap muslin fabric so that if I cut it up, it wouldn't damage anything or be really expensive. And I remember making myself a really just very crudely done little poncho that I had done some pony beads on. And I had the best time that summer pretending all summer long. I was an Indian princess out in the field with my blue bonnets that I didn't pick <laughs> <laughs> and my flowers out there. And that was one of the most standout memories I ever have. As a child, I loved Christmas too. And we always had just fabulous Christmases as far as my parents always tried to make everything special for us. I remember some of those are my most standout things as a child. Oh, how fun. I'm just picturing this field with you out there dancing and playing. It was really cool. I still have such fond memories of that house I grew up in because of that big field full of those flowers every summer. Nice. Heather, besides... Being in a quilt business, did you have other employment? When I first graduated high school, my dad had a job in the oil industry here. And it was one of those things that blossomed for our entire family for about 10 years. So I worked for about 10 years in the courthouses, researching property ownership and things like that. Absolutely loved that career. And then in the end of 2014, whenever everything just kind of recession hit, our entire family was laid off from what we did. And we kind of suddenly had to switch gears after having this straight out of high school career for 10 years, had to totally change directions and decide something new. One of the things in doing that career, our family had always wanted to do was to run some sort of retail business or something that we had full control of and how it was ran. So we ended up taking and starting, my parents did, and then my husband and I joined in and my sister starting a clothing store called Flint Gypsies. It originally started out about the first two months as antique and rustic furniture, and we did continue that for a long time under Cactus Kate. My sister at the time was, I guess she would have been 19 or 20. She said, you know, I love the furniture. It's kind of cool and unique to go find all of these antique finds, but what I really love is clothing. I'm plus size. I know there are other people who would enjoy finding cute clothes too. And it's hard to find. Can't we do something like that? So about six to eight weeks in, we pivoted. And in addition to the furniture, started doing women's clothing. 
and it was just a hit. So for the last eight years, that has been a business my mom has and my sister and I have worked for her and have just a huge community of friends. It turned into a crafting side of that as well. We started in 2016 doing Bible journaling classes. So we did Bible journaling classes, crafting classes, and it was and has been the most exciting and fun thing we've ever done where that's concerned. Something totally different than what we were all used to doing as far as careers, but it has impacted our lives so much. We've got a huge community of friends that have become family to us. When the pandemic hit, that changed for us as far as crafting classes. Some We didn't do any sewing other than we did a couple of handmade Bible covers, but primarily we did mixed media, women's retreats, things like that. And now that COVID has finally, I won't say it's gone, but it has kind of changed how we do everything. People are starting to get back out in our area and go, okay, I want that community again. I want to see people and do things with people. So we are in the process of revamping that space once again, not only to do Bible journaling classes again, but to also offer sewing and quilting now too. Wow. What a big change. Yeah, it really is. Well, you mentioned that you live very near where you grew up. Did you go away to school and come back or did you just stay there the whole time? So I actually stayed here the whole time. So how it worked with my first career was it was an industry my dad was already in. And I was homeschooled from third grade on. So I was about to graduate high school. And the company my dad was working for at the time, I had grown up around all of those people. They knew me really well. And when I was making the decision to leave for college or what I wanted to do, I had never worked before. My parents owned a construction company when I was younger. So as a teenager, I learned to type contracts and things like that. But I had never worked anywhere. I had always just done school and helped my parents in anything they needed. My dad's boss at the time, the owner of the company he was working for, said, you know, I can offer you a job that's better than anything you'll get straight out of college. Why don't you try to go to work for me for a couple of years and see what you want to do and see if you like it. So I ended up not going to college and went straight into that career that lasted me those 10 years. And then our family started this line of stores. And so that is what I ended up doing. And I have never regretted that decision once. It doesn't work for everybody. But for us and in my life, it is exactly what God had intended for me. Cool. I wanted to hear the story about your triplets. So I will tell you that is to this day, the biggest miracle I could have ever experienced in my life. My husband and I got married in 2007 and we had one of these notions that we were going to get married and life was going to be grand. We could see and do everything we wanted to and we could have an instant family if we wanted it. and you know, life was going to go exactly how we wanted. We initially said we wanted to see the world. So we were going to wait to get pregnant and have babies. And then three months into our marriage, we decided we wanted a family. And so we decided in September, we wanted to start a family. And we just figured by December, we would be announcing in time for everybody to be excited at Christmas that a baby was coming. And that didn't happen. We discovered fairly early in, we were blessed to to find out early in that we had fertility issues But still, that was a really long, hard road. We took a couple of years of trying to get pregnant for the first time. And when I got pregnant, we were so excited and ended up a few months in discovering that the baby no longer had a heartbeat. And so I suffered a miscarriage and the miscarriage itself was terrible. As far as finding out, we were no longer going to be able to have this baby we had dreamed of. But one of the scariest moments and still still to this day, one of the most pivotal moments in my life was when I ended up miscarrying, the process didn't happen naturally for me like it was supposed to. And I ended up in the hospital. A very long story short in that part of it, I ended up hemorrhaging and coded in the hospital in the emergency room. And I remember being there and I remember seeing my husband. I had asked him to go get the nurse. I knew something was going on. Something was more wrong than it was supposed to be, even though we knew Obviously, I was having a miscarriage and had been told to expect that something wasn't right. And my husband went to get the nurse and went to get my mom who had walked out to find the nurse herself. And I remember them coming back in and I saw my husband and I saw my mom as I was blacking out. And I remember the very last thing I heard was my mom praying and speaking life over me. And 
the next thing I knew I was waking up in a bed, which is not where I was when I was talking to them and telling them to go get the nurse. And I wake up and I see this crash cart with the paddles charging and they're making sure everyone's clear and are about to shock me when I came to. In this process, I found out in the hours following that and I, you know, the surgery, I had to have to stop internal bleeding. I was told I coded twice and at the hospital I was at, they had sent a nun to be with my family to comfort them and they were preparing for the worst and preparing my family for the worst. And for my husband and I, that was one of the scariest moments of our life, one of the most heartbreaking moments of our life, because here the situation was already bad. Our miracle baby we were pregnant with was not going to happen, and I nearly lost my life in the process. But it was also one of those moments that showed me how real God was for me in my life, that I was on the brink of death and was brought back for a purpose. My life wasn't ready to end yet. So we had the miscarriage. Recovered from all of that and got pregnant again a year later. Unfortunately, to the same situation, had a miscarriage again, not as tragic as the first as far as my health, but still a tragic miscarriage. And so at this point, we're three years into trying. It just kind of felt hopeless. I'd always been raised in church, been raised to have faith, but faith was being harder to find at that point, if I'm being quite honest. So we continued to proceed with fertility treatments. We had done some off and on because it's expensive, especially being at the time self employed. Insurance a lot of times doesn't cover those kinds of things. So it's a save up process and then proceed and see if it works. And if it doesn't work, you have to save up again. So we saved our money and proceeded with in vitro. And the doctor told us, he said, you've got about a 3% chance of success. And we said, okay, well, we'll, we'll try it. You know, we'll take that 3% chance. And so long story short, we ended up about six weeks later having our first positive pregnancy test in that pregnancy, as well as a sonogram. And I still remember the day like it was yesterday. We went in for a sonogram and had no idea what we had as far as babies or anything, just that I was pregnant. And the doctor goes on to do the ultrasound with his nurse. And he says, oh my gosh, we've got to fix something. I forgot we had something on the screen that wasn't supposed to be there. And it was too late at that point. We had already seen three babies. We had had enough sonograms at this point to know what we were seeing, that there was more than one there. And I remember my husband's face kind of got this, you know, everybody thinks a pale look, which is kind of this red face kind of a shock. And the doctor proceeded with letting us know we had a baby A, baby B, baby C. And he told us, he said, you know, baby C is a little bit different. It's not quite the same size. He said, I don't want to, I don't want to say something is not quite right there, but I just want to let you know we're calling it triplets, but right now everything's kind of in limbo. So just know that I'm not 100% sure the status of baby C. And we said, okay. So went home, especially being prone to miscarriages at that point, went home on bed rest and was told to take it easy. And about three weeks later, we had an emergency room trip and we feared the worst because it was much like my first miscarriage. We just kind of knew that something wasn't right. Sure enough, we got to the hospital and the doctor, uh, his nurse did the ultrasound with him in there. And he said, Heather, I'm sorry, but you've lost one of the babies. Baby C is gone. And we were devastated. I had been raised in church my whole life. I had been raised that God takes care of us in every situation. And at that point, I had a really hard time understanding how he was taking care of us. My husband was my biggest comforter, the, the biggest support at the time I had along with my parents. But neither of us could understand why this had happened. And the worst part for me was that it all happened on Mother's Day weekend. So here I am struggling to become a mom. And I'm like, you know, this is the worst thing that could be that I've lost one of these babies on Mother's Day weekend. And the doctor said, I know it's bad, but you've got to focus that you still have two babies. So try to think about that and focus on that. And I said, okay. So we ended up going home still, of course, on bed rest, even more restrictions than I had before. Went back another two to three weeks later for a follow-up ultrasound because I was having, again, some more problems. We feared the worst. We feared that we had lost both of the other babies or one of the other babies. And the nurse, when she did the ultrasound, said, I've got to go get the doctor. And so my heart just sank. And I looked at my husband and neither of us knew what we were going to do at this point if it was, again, bad news. And the nurse came back in. The doctor came back in and he said, tell me what's going on. And she said, well... It's really better if you just look at it and see it for yourself because I really don't know how this happened. I don't have any answers, but 
there's three babies. There's three heartbeats. They're all the same size. They're wiggling. They're moving. I, it's really just better if you look at it yourself. And so the doctor looked at it and then looked at us and he said, well, there's three babies. <laughs> he didn't know what to say either. He said, I don't really have an answer. You know what you saw a few weeks ago. I've been doing this for years. I know what I saw a few weeks ago, but there's, there's three. And I said, well, we're okay with a miracle. And he said, well, that's what you're going to have to call it because I don't have an answer for it other than a miracle. And we were okay with that. You know, what better thing to happen at that moment than a miracle? But what was such an important thing for me in that is when we were in that in-between stage of not, not knowing that baby C was still there or was viable, my mom had given me a scripture. She said, you know, it's the scripture of the day. And I kind of, I think it's for you. It's Isaiah 40, 26 and talks about how God created all of the stars and because he's so great in power, not one of them is missing. And my mom said, I don't know why, but I feel like the scripture is for you. And to be quite honest, in that moment when my mom gave me that scripture, I was a little bit frustrated. I said, you know, I, that's a great scripture. It's a beautiful scripture, but right now I've lost one of these babies and I kind of don't feel like that's for me, mom. And she said, well, I don't know why, but it's just, there was something about it that was so important to me that you needed to know it. So when we went back for that sonogram, when I was having more issues and suddenly baby C was not missing and wasn't gone, I knew what that scripture had been for, that all along God had known when we didn't and when we didn't understand what was going on. And in my mind, I thought from that point forward, I've had this miracle of these babies are all three there. This is going to be great. There's not going to be any more problems. It's going to be smooth sailing. And it was anything but that. I got put in the hospital in preterm labor at 19 weeks. And I know a lot of people don't know kind of how that process works. I didn't. I didn't realize before 22 weeks that most hospitals will not even take you because a baby is not viable before that point and cannot survive. Even with the most advanced medical care, they really can't survive before 22 weeks. So most hospitals will not even, they won't do anything besides send you home and go do your best. So the hospital in Dallas at Baylor decided to take me and put me in the hospital at 19 weeks. So that in itself was another miracle that they were willing to do so. But I was told every day there in a loving way, but every day there, you know, the chances of this are very slim. We just want to be real with you. We're taking our best care of you, but nothing is guaranteed because this is so risky. So we proceeded on that whole time, you know, just kind of inching along another day further, another day further. And finally made it to that 22-week mark. And they would not even between that 19 and 22 weeks do a sonogram to check on the babies because they said it wouldn't do any good if they found anything wrong. There was nothing to be done about it. So we made it to that 22, 23-week mark where they started sonograms again. And we got to see them again and kind of felt a sigh of relief. But still, every week was scary odds of what if they're born this week. You know, this is what the odds of survival are. This is what your chances of long-term disabilities are or problems with you having them. And so we just prayed and inched along just a little bit at a time. My husband and I, during that, we had seen such a miracle with them all being there on that sonogram after I'd had so many problems that we were scared. But at this point, we had 100% faith that we were going to make it to a point where they survived, even with everybody telling us that that wasn't a great possibility. And on November 3rd of 2011, I was 32 weeks and two days, which is further than anybody had ever thought I could go. Even in the very beginning when I wasn't having issues yet, the doctors told me best case scenario was 32 weeks is what they could hope that I could ever make it to with triplets. And so 32 weeks and two days, we had a baby monitor on in the hospital. I was 90 days in the hospital at that point. And we had a monitor on, they were monitoring the babies and the nurse burst through the room, jumped over my husband who's sitting in a chair beside me. And she's like standing in the chair that he's sitting in, standing on the arms of it. He said, I can move if you need me to. And she said, no, I don't have time for that. Something's going on with one of the babies. And she grabbed oxygen, put it on me. And we're still just not sure what's going on because everything felt fine. But what they had seen on the monitor is one of the baby's heart rates had suddenly plummeted and had come back up some. But was a sign there was some distress. So she said, I'm going to get the doctor, but I think we're having babies today. And the doctor came in and she said, well, you told me this morning that you were having some contractions and were kind of tired and that you were big pregnant and you were ready to have babies. And I started crying. I said, I was just tired. I don't really mean it. I'm not ready today. 
<laughs> and she said, no, we've got to have him today. It's time. Something's going on with baby C, which was not the original baby C. As their position changed in the womb, they actually had changed one of the girls. Because at that point, we found out we had two girls and a boy. Baby C had originally been our little boy, but baby C was now one of the girls. And she said, no, nah, baby C wants out today. So we've got to go have babies. And we went straight to the OR you know, by the time they could get a room ready. And that afternoon, we had Sarah, Nicholas, and Emily, who were just the biggest miracles we could ever ask for. Beautiful, beautiful babies. Emmy and Nicholas had a little bit of breathing difficulties when they were born, so they had to be ventilated. And because they're still being premature, even though they made it to great gestation, they did still have to spend time in the NICU. But after 55 days, Emily got to come home. And Sarah and Nicholas got to come home two days before Christmas at 60 days. So we got to have the biggest Christmas celebration ever in 2011 because all three babies got to come home. And they're now 10, fixing to turn 11 this November. Amazing. And I think I saw in one of your posts something about the fair. Yes. So while I was in the hospital, I was in Baylor, Dallas, one of, to this day, to me, the greatest hospitals there's ever been great staff all the way around. I was on the top floor of their antepartum unit, which is the high-risk pregnancy unit, and got to overlook the State Fair of Texas, which would be really cool, except everybody would far rather be out at the fair than in the hospital looking at the fair. But I had a doctor in the hospital that was one of the biggest encouragers there. Well, everybody else was giving me the bad statistics. She was so encouraging. And she said, you got the best view in the city right there overlooking the fair and seeing the fair as well. And I said, you know, I love it, but I kind of wish I was over there. And she said, I know, but here's the thing. I believe your babies are going to be born and they're going to get to come home. And one day you're going to get to take your babies to that fair. I really believe that's going to be a thing. So focus on that. And for now, enjoy not having to fight the crowds and getting to see the fair. So this year was important for us because we've gotten to take our kids to the fair in the past. They did get to go to the fair the very next year after they were born. But this year, they have gotten into sewing and have had such fun with that. They've loved photography. And they decided this year to enter the State Fair of Texas. And for everybody not from Texas, I don't know what other states fairs work like, but it's a huge thing here. I know I was reading in 20, I guess it was 2019, before COVID hit in 2020, they had nearly 10,000 entries into the Creative Arts Division for the State Fair of Texas. So it's huge. And that's, of course, across canning and crocheting and, you know, all creative arts. But the mama in me was so scared for them to enter and be disappointed if they didn't place. I knew they did a great job, but I know there was huge competition and any, any being beat there was well-deserved whoever took first because it's such a hard thing to compete a bit against people from all over the state. But Sarah entered a quilted composition book cover, notebook cover. And Emily entered a paper pieced zippered pouch and then all three kids entered photography. And we got the results from that a couple of weeks ago. Sarah placed first in sewing accessories and Emily placed second just under Sarah in sewing accessories. And then Nicholas took third in photography. Emily took honorable mention in photography. And so this year, not only did they get to go see the state fair, but they are actually exhibited at the state fair. So for us, it was that truly full circle moment. 10, almost 11 years later from me being in the hospital, watching the state fair to now our miracle babies are exhibiting in the state fair as winners. So that was such a cool moment for us this summer to find that out. We get to go see that at the end of this month when the fair opens. Wow. I can't imagine the joy that that brought. It did. There were a lot of happy tears. When I first read the results online, it was about midnight and we had already sent the kids to bed. My husband and I were sitting up chatting and I just happened to have it on my phone and the page refreshed as I opened that tab on my phone and I saw Sarah's name and I kind of gasped. My husband said, is everything okay? And I said, yeah, it's great. Our babies won at the state fair. (laughs) So it was really cool for both of us. Wow. Obviously, Nicholas is fraternal, but I was trying to figure out if the girls were fraternal or identical. They're not identical. We get that question a lot. So they are not identical. Whenever we went in for in vitro, I don't know how much you know about the process of in vitro and what they do, but what they do is they actually extract the follicles and the embryos. And the doctor came to us 
the day that they transfer those embryos. And he said, you know, normally most people get 25 embryos. At the time I was 25 years old. He said 25 is a great healthy age. Most people get 25 embryos and they have some for later to freeze and use if the process doesn't work the first time. He said, but you ended up with three. And he said, so I'm a little bit disappointed in that, but we're going to, if it's okay with you, when we do in vitro, we're going to use all three embryos, but you only have about a 3% chance of that. But I want to let you know that because there is a chance of multiples. So we ended up putting in three and God gave us three. Praise the Lord. That's a miracle in and of itself, isn't it? It is. It is. Very much so. Is there anything else you wanted to share about your family? So, like I said earlier, my husband and I got married in 2007. We had the honor this year of getting to renew our vows in Yellowstone, celebrating our 15th anniversary. We had a a lot of big reasons to celebrate. Our family this last few years has been through a lot of health issues. When COVID happened that first year, we kind of all skirted past it. And then my parents and my sister got COVID and a nephew. We missed it and thought everything was cool. We were going to do good. My dad ended up with pneumonia from having COVID in early 21, but we managed to keep past it. My dad recovered well. But then in November of this last year in 21, my husband got sick with COVID at the time. They didn't know that that's what it was because he never tested positive until 10 days in. Ended up very, very sick with pneumonia. and spent some time in the hospital. And following that, I got COVID and had the same issues, had pneumonia and was in the hospital. So starting November of 21 was just really rough for us. In February, after we finally recovered, my husband had right before Valentine's Day said, you know, something kind of hurts in my leg. It kind of doesn't feel right. I said, okay, well, is it a cramp or, you know, what's going on? He said, I don't know. It just doesn't feel right. I'm just kind of, I'm putting some cream on it or, you know, kind of seeing if it's maybe just a cramp. And two days later, right before Valentine's Day, he started having chest pain and ended up in the hospital with blood clots in his lungs and in his legs. So that all has been something we've dealt with this last year and nearly losing him a couple of times, nearly losing myself due to COVID, our entire family dealing with this was one of those, again, those moments for us where we had to trust God and we had a lot going on that pushed us to want to really celebrate big. So this year we got to celebrate our 15th anniversary in Yellowstone with a vow renewal there and got to renew our vows at the wedding tree in Wyoming overlooking the Tetons. And that was just the cool moment for us this year. And what was so great about it is my baby sister and her husband, she's newly married as well. They got to come and so did my parents. So the nine of us got to all celebrate that together in such a cool place. How fun. It was. It was so much fun. It's one of those moments that I'll remember the rest of my life. Yeah. We'll jump over to, besides quilting, are there other crafts you do or have done? So Bible journaling, like I mentioned earlier, if somebody doesn't know what Bible journaling is, it's kind of like scrapbooking and your Bible. There are wide margin Bibles you can get that have that note-taking space. But instead of just taking notes there, it's applying stamps, stickers, artwork, mixed media, things to your Bible to kind of help that scripture jump out at you, help you remember those scriptures well. One of the first ones I did was Isaiah 40, 26 that I was telling you earlier was my scripture my mom had given me when I was pregnant. I love hand embroidery and I don't really do traditional hand embroidery. A lot of people who embroider say that the back has to be as pretty as the front. Mine isn't, but I love kind of in quilting, it would be called big stitch, but I love kind of that hand-stitched look. So I've done a lot of drop cloth samplers and things like that and hand-stitching and hand-applying patches to Bible covers is actually how I started out doing that, but to different December daily covers and journals. How neat. I bet they're beautiful. They're a lot of fun to do. They have a completely different look than traditional embroidery, but I love the end result. Mm Mm-hmm. Any other hobbies? So I love collecting Christmas things. My husband and I and our kids and my parents and my sister, we all love to travel together. That's one of our favorite things to do is we love traveling. We go to Tennessee pretty frequently and vacation there. Horses, we have a farm. And so we're always doing something with horses or goats, rabbits, chickens, you name it. That's probably here. I think we've got everything but a camel right now. 
and our family is our biggest thing. Family is our most important, and I, I hate to call it a hobby. I don't mean that, but it's everything to us. Our family is so important. And the years go by so quickly. I know you're enjoying each moment of it. I'm trying to. It's still this summer has been a big jump for us because our kids are all taller than me now. Suddenly, my mama heart's not okay with it. I'm so glad they're healthy and growing like weeds, but I just see such these stages just kind of going and it's just, oh, it makes me sad. You know, this morning, my kids knew that we were going to be doing this interview this morning. And so today is our first official day of school. And so I said, you know, once I get off the interview, we'll go do schoolwork and handle that. And as we speak, everybody's kind of in there starting to do their own thing. And I'm like, oh, wow, this is this is a big change for me this year. Last year was so hands-on and I know this year will be too, but I'm not used to this. I got this mom, I'll start on my own. It's both a happy and sad moment for me. Yeah. Do you think some of these hobbies show up in your quilting? I think so. The biggest thing I've seen so far is, like I said, the big stitch. I love doing some embroidery elements to quilting and sewing and vintage. My love for vintage has definitely shown up in it. One of the biggest things I have had fun doing recently is upcycling vintage quilt blocks and even old vintage tops. So that's definitely carried through my love for collecting vintage things and those hobbies has come through with that. That's interesting. Do you put some of those items in your shop? So yet I have not. One of the things I have done recently is I've started making zipper pouches. I've done a couple of vintage block zipper pouches and those have actually been ones I've kept. But yes, that is my plan. I've got a huge tote of vintage blocks. I'm in the process right now of making into pouches and things that will go in my shop. Cool. Tell me about who introduced you to quilting. So it's kind of one of those things I always wanted to do, but never had the guts to do it. I always kind of talked myself out of it. Now, my sister-in-law, Shelly, is a fabulous quilter. I mean, she can put her mind to it and she does it. She does really intricate stuff. But for many years, they lived away from us in Pennsylvania. So she and I didn't get a chance to sew together. And I bought a Black Friday machine about eight or nine years ago to sew some stuff for the kids. And quite honestly, what I made was it was cute for them to wear. And they were, you know, toddlers. So it looked cute on a toddler running a thousand miles an hour. But it wasn't really what you could call a quality product. It wasn't anything you would go see in a shop and go, I want to buy that. But I've always wanted to quilt. My great-grandmother quilted, but I never got the chance to really meet her. She lived to be nearly 104, but I was a baby when she passed away. So all I have seen is pictures of her sewing, but they've always talked about the tops she did. I'm not really sure where I got my desire to quilt or my love for quilting. Something I've always wanted to do, but like I said, I talked myself out of it. And that machine I bought stayed in my closet for about eight years after I sewed the kids a couple of little pillowcase dresses. And this spring, I told my husband in April, I said, I have always wanted to quilt my entire life. It's been something that's, like I said, I don't know really where that came from, but I've always wanted to do that. And I just talked myself out of it. I said, but I kind of think I want to do this. So the very next day, he drove me to Dallas and bought me my first baby lock machine. And the rest has been history since then. I YouTubed tutorials until my eyes were crossing from all the stuff I was watching. And my sister-in-law after that helped show me some things. The rest has been history. I've quilted all summer and it has been something I have absolutely fallen in love with. That explains the picture of you holding the sewing machine box with your big smile. (laughs) Yes. Whether it's quilt that you have made or that someone else made, do you have a favorite quilt? So I do. Now, I love the quilts I have done. They are super special to me. I absolutely love them because they were something I did in my first works. But there's one quilt that's actually my favorite that is not one I made. When my husband and I got married, I had this kind of, I guess, every girl's dream of something she wants. My three things I had always wanted were a cedar chest, a china cabinet for china, and a quilt of my very own that was made just for me. So when I was a teenager, my parents bought me a cedar chest. I made it my hope chest. That's where I put all of my things I collected that one day I would want in a house of my own. Before I met my husband, I had bought my first home and had bought my own china cabinet. So that was fulfilling that second kind of dream. Found a really cool set of vintage china for it at a thrift store. Found this, I think it's a eight or 10 place setting 
set of Aberdeen Chana, just the coolest antique Chana ever. Got a great deal on it, filled my Chana cabinet with it. So it's, again, fulfilling that love of vintage. And the quilt was the last thing I wanted. And I didn't want to just go buy a store-bought quilt. And it was kind of one of those things I had. My mom knew that. I was like, oh, I want a quilt. But at the same time, I didn't want to say, I want a quilt. So she would go buy me a quilt. I didn't say it for that reason. It was just that us talking about dreams and hopes and kind of that every girl dreams of type thing. And I was completely surprised because my mom was the only person who knew that. When my husband and I had our rehearsal dinner, his grandmother, who was the sweetest, kindest woman ever, was a quilter, had done some fabulous quilts, always entered the fair every year. My husband's grandmother surprised us at our rehearsal dinner with a king-size quilt that when we got engaged, she started making for us. And so the nine months we were engaged, she hand-pieced and hand-quilted us a king-size quilt. So she presented it to us at our rehearsal dinner. And that was my third thing of things I had always wanted that she had no idea about that, but was so special to us. 15 years later, I can't bring myself to put it on the bed because it's so special to me. I've never put it anywhere where anything could get spilled on it or, you know, and she told us, she said, use this. I made it to use. But now that she's passed away, I know it's such a special thing to not only me, but to my husband. And it's something that will always be an heirloom for our family and something she made for us that I'm sure our kids will enjoy one day too. Well, I hope it's out where you can see it though. It has been. Actually, we've moved a bookcase where that rack had been. So I've got to put up a new quilt rack for it. But yes, it's something we've always kept on display in our house. When you're working on your quilts, do you have a tool you're so happy that you have? My rotary cutter. I don't know how I could do it without that. And I think that's part of the reason a few years ago when I started selling my girls pillowcase dresses back when I bought that machine, I had no idea about the rotary cutter. I just bought a couple of patterns and bought some scissors to go with my machine. And man, I could not make it without my ruler and rotary cutter. It helps me so much with my straight lines. Things that I'm not capable of, I can't cut a straight line to save my life. But that ruler and rotary cutter are hands down my favorite tool. And during the process, do you like each step or is there one quilting step that you like more than the others? So I enjoy the kind of seeing it come together process. But for me, the final step of the binding, the binding to me, a lot of people love binding. Binding to me is one of the hardest steps because I'm so afraid. What if I get it wrong and it turns out ugly or I have to rip that binding off? So that to me is the most tedious part. But once I start to see it go on, I get about halfway through the binding and I get really excited. And I have to remind myself, I still have the rest of the quilt to do. So don't get too excited yet. (laughs) (laughs) Don't count your eggs before they hatch kind of thing. But that for me is the best exciting process is when I'm about halfway done binding, you can really start to see that quilt come together. It no longer looks raw. It no longer looks unfinished. Yeah. Can you describe your worst quilting experience? So a while back, my husband had told me about a couple of coworker friends whose wives were expecting babies. And so I had decided to make a baby quilt for them. The first one went fabulous. Loved how the process went. The next one, I had this charm pack I had saved for a while. A lot of people quilt with solids and I'm actually not a solids person. I love mixing prints. But this was for a baby boy. And so I have fewer boy type prints. So I thought this would be a great time to use these solids. They were a textured solid. And I thought it was going to be great. And the quilt did turn out beautiful. But that was the single most frustrating experience because the edges of those textured ones, until you got that seam sewn, they just wanted to fray and ravel. And I told my husband, I said, I hope they know how much I love them, even though I've actually never met your coworker or his wife or this baby, because if I didn't love the person this is going for, (laughs) I would just stop this quilt right now. But the quilt turned out beautiful and I loved those textured prints in it once they were in there, but they were a mess to work with originally. Huh. I wonder what made that different from the other material for it to fray so much. You know, I don't know. The way it was textured, I wondered if it had a little bit of linen in it. And so... To me, that may have been the difference because it wasn't your standard quilting cotton, but it was still one of those things. I'm not sure I would use it again based on how difficult it was to sew with. It just works differently than any quilting cotton. I've even sewn in some of my dabbling I've done recently in garments. I've even played with a little bit of rayon, but it just reacted different than any cotton I've sewn with. Interesting. 
What do you think has drawn you to quilting rather than using your time on doing something else? I think it's just something that I've always wanted to do. Like I said earlier, I don't really know where my desire for quilting came from. I've been able to this summer get my mom into quilting with me. She started quilting now, but she was not a quilter. So I didn't get it from her. I'm so happy that she and I had that as a hobby that we're now being able to do together. And my girls are learning to quilt too. But, you know, I'm not really sure where that love came from other than I've always had a love for vintage. And one of my favorite things to do here in Texas, about an hour from us, we have what's called Canton Trades Days, which is like the largest flea market in the nation. And there's always vintage quilts there that you can buy. And I've collected those for years here and there as I go, I'll find a vintage quilt and purchase it. So I think it comes from just my love of seeing vintage quilts done that I wanted to be able to produce something beautiful like that too. That's so neat. Then who do you make your quilts for? So, so far I have made them for our family to use here in our home. I just finished a Halloween quilt. My first couple of quilts are in the process of being finished now. I'm actually sending my heart quilt that I sent you in one of my pictures. I am actually having it done by my sister-in-law. She's just purchased her first long arm. So as soon as it is all put together and ready to go, she's going to long arm it for me. So, so far those have been done for use within here in our family. And then I've made some baby quilts for, like I said, my husband's coworkers. And I made a baby quilt too to enter in the fair. Fun. What are you working on right now? So I've just finished up a dress. I just finished a quilted dress as well. My next project is a jelly roll jacket. And the process of it is really interesting. I'm not sure yet how it's going to turn out, but basically you make an entire quilt and then you cut it up, which kind of makes me sick to, you know, make a beautiful quilt and then rip it all apart to do that. But the process is truly that you make a quilt except for binding, you sandwich it, quilt it, and then cut out this jacket pattern out of your finished quilt. So I'm in the process of doing that right now with jelly rolls. Interesting. I've been wondering, I'm picturing like putting a sleeve on and the way the seam is, how do you do that on the inside to finish that off? So I haven't done mine yet, but what I have read from other quilters and what I've seen is they use a big stitch and create a binding just like you would bind a quilt. And they finish their seams on the inside with a hand-stitched, big-stitch, and binding. Okay. So you just bond around your seams. I didn't think they would leave it undone, but I wasn't sure. Yeah. Everything I've seen so far, that's how they finish it. And after doing this dress I did this week, it was my first time using actual bias tape because I've just done quilt binding where I just use my two-and-a-half-inch strips and bind them over to the front. After using this bias tape, I think that's actually what I'm going to do to finish mine on the inside is use that and finish it in that way and just top stitch over it. I think it'll turn out really pretty. That would be cute. Can you share a quilting tip? So my biggest tip has been to glue my binding down. And I know we've talked a lot about binding, but that for me was the most daunting part of the whole process. So what I love to do is I stitch my binding on the back and then fold it over to the front to machine stitch it down. And I iron it really flat from the backside so that it folds over the front well. But before doing that, I have, or before folding it over to the front, I have started along my front doing a quarter inch bead of water soluble fabric glue. I love the sew line glue. And those glue sticks are a quarter inch wide. So you don't even have to think about it. You just use the glue stick and you know you've done a quarter inch wide. So I glue that and then fold the binding over to the front and use an iron over it. And it glues the binding down where it stays down better. And I actually don't even pin or clip my binding down at that point. I just stitch along it because the glue after being ironed over holds it down and it's water soluble. So it's something that'll wash right out too. As of yet, I've not even ever seen any of the glue on the front side of my quilt when the binding is finished, but it is water soluble if you did get glue on the body of the quilt. I've never heard of that before. It works great. I've done it this last couple and it is absolutely life-changing when it comes to quilting, how much easier it's made the process for me. Hmm. Well, we talked just a little bit about your business, but how did your quilting hobby change to a business? I started my Cultivated Cowgirl page a couple of years ago during the pandemic. I wanted to kind of follow our process of gardening and the things the kids were doing and kind of a way for me to keep up to and look back and in a blog type form of what was going on. And at the time I sold seeds and we've loved gardening and things like that. And through the Flint Gypsies business that my mom owns, 
I developed a lot of friends who loved gardening and things too. So I started as my portion of the business selling seeds and gardening things. This year, that kind of changed somewhat. I still did seeds this spring. Spring is always a big time when everybody's wanting to get outside. So I still did seeds, but I also started selling fat quarters and small notions, things I enjoyed like that. And it just kind of has blossomed over the summer. I have, as of last week or two weeks ago, put up some of my zippered pouches on there. And my husband was the biggest driving force behind that. He said, you know, people are asking you to sew stuff. Why aren't you selling it? And I said, well, I've just not thought about it. I don't mind making it a business, but this is something I enjoy so much. I just don't know if others would enjoy it like I do. And he said, well, what do you have to lose? Just put it on there and see. And worst case scenario, you've made something that you would love to keep or that the kids would love to have if nobody ever purchases it. But just try it and see. He said, I have faith that you can do it. And I think other people will like it too. And so he talked me into it. I posted on my page four zippered pouches. And within 20 minutes, all four were sold and I had orders for more. So it's just kind of one of those, the rest is history type things. I've got several people right now wanting quilts that I've been finishing up fair projects. The kids and I just entered our local fair. So we just got those turned in this last week. So now it's on to projects that I could or would sell. So I'm in the process of starting some of those to have some things ready to go. Isn't it amazing how things like that snowball? It is. And I've had several people ask me, okay, so what about this baby quilt? Or could you do this? I loved this one that you did. And my husband said, see, I told you other people would like this. He is my biggest cheerleader. He said, you've got to have faith in yourself. And he said, what you're doing looks great. He said, you've shown me different things from different shops that yours looks just as good. So why wouldn't you? And I said, well, I don't know. We're always, I guess, our own worst critic. He said, but see, people like it just as much as I do. <laughs> you know, and you always think, well, they're just saying that because they're married to me. You know, they, they have to say that kind of thing. But it was one of those proud moments to sell so many of those bags all at once and gave me that push to go, okay, this is something that you can do more than just as a hobby. But my biggest thing with it is I want it to stay something I love. And so often we kind of force ourselves into a situation where if we're doing something because we have to, we don't enjoy it as much. So I always want it to be something that I do because I enjoy it. And I think too, that produces a better product too. If you love what you're doing and enjoying it, and it's not just an assembly line process, I think that will carry through to the work as well in it. Mm-hmm. I agree. Can you tell me how you came up with the cultivated cowgirl name? So like I said, whenever I first started my page, we were doing a lot of gardening. So I was thinking about cultivating things and, you know, breaking ground. And we've always had a farm, always had horses ever since I was a teenager. I grew up around that kind of stuff. So I've always considered myself a cowgirl. I wasn't out there roping and rambling, you know, but always had horses, showed horses in high school. And we've tried to raise our kids with that lifestyle as well, because we just love farm life. So the cowgirl part came easy, but I wanted to create a name that made you think about the finer things. And by the finer things, I don't mean like the fancy and the, the expensive, but that you can be cultivated, you can be a cowgirl, you can combine all of those things in one. It doesn't just have to be the rough and tough side of things that you see. And that is part of farm life. There's the days that you go outside in your pajamas to take care of animals, or you have an animal down and you're out there not looking your best. And that's the cowgirl part of it too. But there is the side of it that you can dress up in a quilt dress you made in your cowgirl boots too. So that's kind of where the cultivated cowgirl came from. And I loved combining my love of gardening too and cultivating ground in that as well. Are you selling these things under the cultivated cowgirl or under Flint Gypsies? So thus far, I have sold them on my Cultivated Cowgirl page. I do them through my page. I don't have an online store set up. I just strictly do them through my Facebook. I have sold some of my things through our Flint Gypsies page as well. And we are, like I mentioned earlier, in the process of revamping one of our spaces to do crafting again and adding sewing to it. And we've actually added fabric, notions, and things like that there too. So I'm sure once we get that portion open within the next few weeks, there will be some of my creations at Flint Gypsies too. Great. Now, earlier when you were talking, I thought I heard you say lineup stores. So is there more than one store? There are. There's actually three. During the pandemic, we shut down two of them and kept one of them just to do online. And we closed all three in store for nine months. And then we reopened the one. And since the pandemic, we've only had one open. Then this summer, we reopened a second one. And then this fall, we're reopening our third one with our 
Bible journaling and sewing and also our clothing there as well. So yes, we do have three stores total. And how far apart are they? So together, they're only about 30 minutes apart. So you can get to all three within 30 minutes. So one is in Bullard, Texas. That's our biggest store. Our Jacksonville, Texas store is the one that's also open now. And then our Flint, Texas store is the one that is actually our original. It's our smaller location as far as the clothing, but it has the journaling and crafting side of it too. So those are two separate spaces, but one business. And that is the one we're in the process of reopening. And so they're all within about 30 minutes of each other. How neat. And where can we go to find you online? So it is facebook.com slash the cultivated cowgirl. It will also soon be the cultivated cowgirl.com. I've just got to get all of that finished setting up. My husband's working on that with me right now. He's a computer programmer. So I'm leveraging his abilities on things like that. And Heather, was there anything else you wanted to share with me? I don't think so. It's just been fun to kind of talk through it and talk all about it. It's been nice to share their story and share the miracle that God has done for them and in our lives. So that's something I always want to share because you never know who's going through something and waiting for their miracle. And a miracle doesn't have to be three babies. It can be something as simple as a financial breakthrough when you didn't see how anything could work out or someone being healed of something. It's just everybody's miracles look different, but sometimes it's nice to hear that there's hope out there when you're in the middle of something really, really tough. That's wonderful. And thank you so much for sharing your story with me. Absolutely. I appreciate it. And thank you for asking me to. It's been an honor. Well, thank you, Heather. This was so much fun. I enjoyed it. Bye-bye. Bye. You can find more stories on aquilterslife.com or subscribe on your favorite podcast player so each episode will be downloaded automatically. Also, I want to hear about you and your wonderful quilts. Please contact me, Paula Chamberlain, through the website to set up an interview. And as always, thanks for listening.